difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. In our last installment, we talked about Iron Man, the metal-plated seed from which the Marvel Cinematic Universe would sprout. Now let's talk about Captain America's Civil War, the latest offering from the MCU. The Avenger Initiative, introduced by Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury, has become a powerful peacekeeping force. And with great power comes, well, you know the rest. (laughs) This is ostensibly the third Captain America movie, and while Cap is very much front and center, it's also very much an Avengers movie. It's also an Iron Man movie. And that's because those MCU characters figure so heavily into the plot. What's more, it's also a film tasked with making that universe bigger, bringing in a new Spider-Man, and for the first time, Black Panther, both soon to get their own solo movies. It's so big, it makes Iron Man look like a quiet character study. New York. Washington, D.C. Sokovia. Okay, that's enough. Captain, people are afraid. That's why I'm here. We need to be put in check. Whatever form that takes, I'm game. I'm sorry, Tony. If I see a situation pointed south, I can't ignore it. Sometimes I wish I could. Sometimes I want to punch you in your perfect teeth. But the safest hands are still our own. I was wrong about you. What was your experience of watching these films back to back? I really enjoyed Captain America Civil War. I this was one of those films that I was I was trying to be a good film critic and not over anticipate. But the the ads got me really excited in a in a like a dumb fangirl kind of way, just a kind of yee, look it, look it, look it kind of way. <laughs> and that was my experience of a lot of the movie. Stepping back and thinking about it, I kind of had a a series of, of trickle down reactions to it where I thought, yeah, you know, the the fighting was super badass, awesome, but like a lot of the Talking didn't make much sense. They they really should have actually talked about some of the things they were experiencing. And then the more I thought about it and the more I let the, the movie sit with me, the more I felt there's a lot of really complicated and interesting dynamics going on here where people are translating their feelings into violence because they're they're not used to having conflicts that they can't resolve, either with violence or just by saying this is the way it's going to be. Stark in particular, Tony Stark is a billionaire industrialist rock star who is used to saying do this and having it happen. And they're all all of the Avengers are used to agreeing with each other. When they suddenly come up against a conflict that cannot be easily resolved, they don't know how to deal with it. And they all kind of go off and, and pout in their own corners. And then they 
come out fist flying. I really think that the MCU needs to develop past this point, that this is a terrific starting point for a story where everybody everybody kind of needs to grow up a little bit. But cycling back from this into the simplicity of Iron Man, where he is kind of dealing with the fact that he can have whatever he wants and suddenly what he wants has changed. I, it was just a really interesting experience for me, like stripping so much of what's built up around the character away and getting back to basics with him. I also just I found it really interesting, as I said, the MCU movies have to to tick along like super fast clockwork to service so many characters and so many plot lines at once. So dialing back to Iron Man, there were there were a few minutes where I was like, is this movie slow? Mm -hmm. It feels slow. And it doesn't feel slow because it's slow. It feels slow because it's slow in comparison. So it was kind of it was nice to get that kind of readjusted and get back to the pacing of a movie that can be about one person, even if it is about 57 things involving that one person. So you're saying the pacing felt sl slower on Iron Man? Or yes. On hmm. Wow. I would not, uh, I would not say that yeah. <laughs> at all. I mean, I, li I like Cap uh, Captain America Civil War, uh, but uh, a lot of it was just getting to, to that point of, delivering on the title um and once it gets to that point it's fantastic that all that airport tarmac. yeah it's all about the airport fight mm -hmm. every, every, everything else i could kind of like i, I won't say i could take or leave because i did enjoy the film but mm -hmm. it like nothing came close to that level of them running at each other and fighting in, in the airport to me no and, and and i was pleased with how extensive that sequence was and how much how, how uh, democratic it was in terms of getting letting all the, all the characters, you know, fight and interact in the different ways. It was just I mean, a really good action it, scene. Like yeah, there was yeah. lots yeah. of different stuff happening in different segments of of the scene. It had a great but, rhythm to it. Yeah. Too. yeah, and it's so well choreographed. I mean, that's again, as we see more and more of these big team films, one of the things that really struck me about X Men Apocalypse was that there's a, a fight scene that's on that scale, and the fighting isn't well choreographed. It isn't interesting. It doesn't convey that much about character here how everybody fights conveys a lot about their character though i will say i i i'm gonna poke some holes into the core in the fight choreography here um and and in the captain america the winter soldier both both of these films are directed by uh, the russo brothers they have this kind of go-to style which is very um tight keeping the camera very tight on the action and making the the punches really fa fast uh, it's got a kind of a visceral impact. It's very, very fast and fast and furious. It's not not a lot of build up. You're really kind of getting in in the mix, and uh, I, I find that to, I, I, to be repetitive after a while and not not terribly satisfying. Um, I think it worked a little bit better out on the tarmac when you have this nice open space and a lot of different things happening, and, and all the characters having their own powers and those being utilized, and so that that offered much more of a variety but uh you know i remember seeing captain america the winter soldier and uh being really excited right away by the by the fight sequence on a ship and i'm now less excited that there's they seem to be that seems to be, have set the template for how they film every fight scene um i but. felt i felt that a little on the well, let's just say right here. Well, there will be spoilers. The, the movie's been out for several weeks, mm -hmm. so there's, yeah, there there's are there are just generally with the, yeah. the next picture show. Yes, what you're talking about with the fight choreography and it blurring together. I felt that in the climactic fight between Cap and Iron Man, um, which 
really kind of receded into my memory until, uh, you know, I was sitting down writing my notes for this because it, it doesn't feel like the climactic fight. That airport fight feels mm-hmm. like the climactic fight and the big fight between the two major characters just feels like an afterthought. Really? I, I it did didn't like... to me at all. And and most of that, I do think that that, that climactic fight feels overly long mm-hmm. because so much has already been resolved via the big airport fight. But to me, the big airport fight was about, you know, I I have a an ethos and you're not following the ethos. So I'm going to knock you down and take you in. The climactic fight was I want to kill you. And it it became very, very personal. And for me, that really did up the stakes. It made it a lot uglier. And it made the the physical, the way that the, the conflict is staged, the way the fighting is staged, it's just, it's very brutal. You know, it's brutal in a way. The airport scene for me feels like, you know, a 60s Marvel comic where everybody's like, oh, well, we mistook you for bad guys or you were taken over by an alien entity or whatever. So we're all going to fight until you get knocked down. That the the fight in the shaft where they're basically just trying to drag each other down and kill each other like that didn't feel like something I I felt like I'd seen between heroes in a Marvel movie. I'll just put the difference here a little bit. I I agree with you that I was a little worn down by the time we got to that big fight, but I like that the third act is a different. The uh, uh, screenwriters Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely have, have cited Seven as an influence for that, and, and I really get that. I, you, could, you could even bring in Pepper Potts head in a box if you wanted to, I guess, but glad they didn't <laughs> oh, go there. No. Uh, but, uh, Can I just say there's a moment in Iron Man where she leaves a head-sized box for Tony Stark <laughs> with a little note on it? We made that, that same joke uh, when we were watching it this time. Okay. Yeah, me and my husband were like, did she did she send him her own head? How did she do that? It's my favorite I mean, Nirvana song, a head-shaped box. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's an efficient assistant, but that's a that's a very efficient thing to be able to do. Uh, but I like like that it changed to be a much more intense between these two characters, you know, intense study, drama between these two characters. You know, I, I think that again, anything after that fight scene is going to feel a little anticlimactic. But then the third act, I think, really dials things back in a, in a, in, a, in a way that works. The only problem with the third act for me is kind of how we get there via Tony Stark like de-escalating and just kind of saying all right well we're gonna we're gonna at least pretend to be friends we're gonna try to be friends Mm -hmm. like that i felt was maybe a little too glossed over in an attempt to get to the action and when he shows up and they they aim their weapons at him and he's like no i come in peace and they're like oh okay whatevs like i don't know there was more glossing over in civil war than i would have liked in terms of things like we have to fight them because this this world threatening crisis, which we're not going to bother telling them about because eh, reasons, whatever. You know, there was a lot of if you if you go through and look at the character's history and the character's motivations and how the characters have been established all the way back to Iron Man, their behavior is convincing to me. But like the specific kind of ways that they word it in terms of we're going to shrug off conversing about this further like i often felt like eh, you could probably have spent maybe a little bit more time on that did you believe um stark's motives for being that upset i mean obviously his parents were killed but uh, but yeah but but i mean doesn't he understand what the situation was i think it's really personal and the fact that it was kept that information was kept from him especially by by upstanding boy scouts that's true no, America. that's a good point i, uh, I, I point. yeah i think that is you know i had the same thought but the more i thought about it the more i think yeah i think tony stark probably would react that way there's also i mean we did get to see the scene earlier in the film where he's he tries to to virtually recreate a scene where he actually said something meaningful to them before they died yeah. and 
and it's clear that that is their deaths are weighing on him in a Batman-esque kind of abstract extending over his entire life kind of way. But actually watching the video of them being murdered by Bucky by hand, I mean, <laughs> that's personal. I'm just not really here for that whole thing. Like, cause I, I thought that the, that early scene where they're establishing that felt very out of place. And I felt that the revelation at the end felt very out of place. It's like till now there's really been no indication that Tony Stark is at all tormented about his parents' death, unless I am forgetting something from a previous film. But that to me felt like a very odd addition to the character this late into his tenure in the the MCU. Um, And going back to Iron Man immediately after just kind of highlighted to me, like, the Tony Stark we have in Civil War is very, very different from, and then that makes sense. I mean, he's been in, what, five this Marvel movies fifth, at this yeah. point? I, he may have been in a post credit scene that I'm forgetting, but I I came out of this movie, and, and this is a very half-baked theory that I don't, like, actually want to, like, stamp, but I did kind of come out of this movie feeling like these characters kind of get less fun or less interesting the longer you spend with them, because all my favorite parts of Civil War were... Black Panther and Scarlet Witch and Spider-Man and the ones that we haven't seen go through several movies worth of trauma and have all this emotional baggage and and angst now. And I I get that that is an interesting place for the MCU to go, but it's just not that fun to spend two and a half hours there the way it's fun to spend two hours watching Tony Stark become Iron Man. And I feel like with this Civil War and Age of Ultron is just kind of getting very weighed down in this idea of what being a hero does to heroes and, you know, the the consequences of it. And it's, I guess it's interesting, but it's not really that fun anymore. I think it's a trade-off. I mean, you yeah. lose sort of the, the charm of the focus on one character, but you gain this sort of complex interactions and this shared history and these, you know, all these characters that, that have, you know, relate, you know, one-on-one relationships between, you know, Cap and Iron Man and, and various, you know, other sort of interesting pairings that you can do. But, but I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting trade-off. You mentioned heroes though. That kind of brings us to our succession of topics, starting with uh, Tasha. You want to talk about heroes in, in this movie and other Marvel movies. Well, one thing I basically just wanted to say is that, I mean, Stanley appears to have taken credit for things he maybe shouldn't have taken credit for over the years. But one of the things that really does seem to kind of like live in his wheelhouse, that it really does seem to be specifically a thing he brought into the world is this idea that heroes can be very, very flawed and that it does not make a character less heroic for them to be hurting, for them to be frightened, for them to be longing for things, for them to be missing things. And that's something that I still to this day keep seeing in the MCU movies that makes them meaningful to me in a way that, for instance, Batman versus Superman is not. There's a lot of angst in the Marvel Universe that's of a very different brand from the angst that is in other people's superhero movies around the issue of the things that these heroes want and cannot have and the things that they try to do and cannot achieve. And for me, in both Iron Man and Civil War, 
there are very different things that Tony Stark is missing in his life and, and can't achieve, but they basically come down to what kind of human being he is. He wants a meaningful relationship with Pepper that he can't necessarily have because he's not a meaningful relationship kind of guy, and she knows it and keeps him at arm's length. He wants Cap to understand in Civil War his emotions around all of the guilt he feels about so many different things that have happened over the course of these five movies, and he can't convey it because he's not used to talking about his emotions. He's not used to being able to push off responsibility for what happens in his life onto other people, which is something that he's trying to do here, which is a very ignoble thing. And yet, because we've seen so much of his history as a hero, he doesn't come across as less heroic for it. He just comes across as momentarily misguided in the same sort of way that Cap is obsessed with Bucky and seems to be momentarily misguided. For me, one of the problems with Civil War is that it doesn't really answer any of its questions. It's trying to tie into all of these big real world issues about how what heroism means in the real world, what America, what responsibilities America has to the rest of the world, given the technology that can kill people on the other side of the planet without repercussions. But they don't actually come to any conclusions. They just kind of let the heroism of these characters that we know and hopefully love at this point, stand in for any sort of answers. And that becomes a problem. But in the same way, I respect Stan Lee's ability to let heroes be flawed, I respect this Civil War's ability to let heroes not have all of the answers and still be striving toward them. Tony, if someone dies on your watch, you don't give up. Who said we're giving up? We are for not taking responsibility for our actions. This document just shifts the blame. Sorry, Steve, that that is dangerously arrogant. This is the United Nations we're talking about. It's not the World Security Council. It's not S.H.I.E.L.D. It's not Hydra. No, but it's run by people with agendas, and agendas change. That's good. That's why I'm here. When I realized what my weapons were capable of in the wrong hands, I shut it down and stopped manufacturing. Tony, you chose to do that. If we sign this, we surrender our right to choose. What if this panel sends us somewhere we don't think we should go? What if there's somewhere we need to go and they don't let us? We may not be perfect, but the safest hands are still our own. If we don't do this now, it's going to be done to us later. As I keep saying, I hope this is a platform for a developing story rather than an end-all and be-all here, but I really like what this film does with heroism. I'm curious to ask you all, too, about the separation that that happens that causes this civil war. It has to do with two things and not one. It has to do with this this Segovia Accord and whether or not they're going to sign it and agree to uh, be under certain, to work under certain restrictions and perhaps not do uh, follow through on missions that, that they feel uh, they might they might have otherwise. Um, and so there's a division on that about their limits. But then the other, the separate issue, the separate but related issue is about the Winter Soldier and about who is who is going to protect uh, protect him and who's who, who is not. Were those two things? Do they integrate well? for you or did they seem confusing were they confused in some way i mean because it just seems to me that the segovia thing is just kind of dropped and it really just becomes uh, about how to handle the winter soldier i agree with you that they're they get imbalanced treatment in the movie i think that they both work well together because they're both fundamentally about who's responsible when something goes wrong yeah but i I was i think that cap just seems like he would be on the side of law what, law and, and oversight, I think that yeah, seems like it, a cap it, kind of thing. Yeah, it is It is interesting the way he and Iron Man fall. And I, I, I think the movie does 
earn that because if you know on the surface if you were just reading the synopsis of this movie and and Bucky Barnes wasn't in the picture you would think obviously Captain is on the side of the Accords and and Iron Man isn't Mm -hmm. but it it makes sense within the logic of the movie and in the logic of this MCU that has set up you know with Avengers and, and Age of Ultron you know this massive destruction and it it does kind of go back, I think, to what we were talking about in the first half of this Iron Man being a product of the Afghan conflict and Cap being a product of World War II and the differing ideas of heroism that come out of those two conflicts where World War II was kind of a lot more cut and dry, like what saving people meant and what being a good soldier meant. And that becomes a lot muddier by the time we get to the second Iraq war and Afghan conflict and all that. I mean, and what was the second Captain America, but, you know, a movie about the disillusionment of our perfect soldier, of, of him kind of just discovering that the people who are making the decisions are, are corrupt and, and that he is <laughs> has better moral judgment than they do. Yeah, I think that connection could have made, been made, but I think it's right. That is sort of the arc of that character where he is, he is as you say, kind of trusting his, his own ideals and, and principles more than what people tell him to do. And that's when I say that I really like a lot of the things going on in Civil War, but I don't necessarily like how they're articulated. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Like at at almost no point, it, it takes a really long time for anybody to get around to saying, by the way, Bucky says he didn't actually kill this guy. Right. Like, and then by the time it comes up, it, it's too late. It It's never explicitly said, you know, by the way, I trusted S.H.I.E.L.D. and they turned out to be heavily infiltrated. There are all of these elements going into where the, the characters are by the Civil War, which you can intuit based on what's happened previously, but that are never articulated. And that just seems like not a very natural way. You know, I, when, when people in a relationship, in a long-term relationship fight, they bring up things that they've been holding against each other. You know, laundry is cleared during these times. And to have these characters just kind of be like, there's a lot of stuff going on. We're not going to vocalize any of it. Like there were times that that bothered me, mostly just for the the sheer, you know, Roger Ebert's idiot plot. This can only go forward if people don't do or say the obvious things. Right. But then you have to buy the idea of, brainwashing, which I think is probably not necessarily set up as something that everyone's going to buy into. Um, that's another thing that probably could have been drawn out a little bit more is, is you know, what is what does this guy have to do to prove that he can be trusted? And really, he can't be trusted because he is sort of kicked back into action at a certain point. Yeah. I mean, there's the moment in the movie where he says, I'm not sure I'm worth all this. <laughs> I was like, you think? No, you're the most boring character in the MCU. <laughs> you're definitely not worth it. Um, he shouldn't that, be. That, that is, like he's got a bionic arm and, and yeah, everything. Yeah, I, I think that's that's actually one of the remarkable things about this movie is how entertaining it is, despite the fact that it is centered on a, a fairly uh, dull. Yeah, he's character. he's. I think I think that character. I think Bucky's pretty fun in the first Captain America movie, hmm. or at least it's more more crucial to yeah. understanding of who the who Cap is. But he's just kind of this sort of fairly zombified plot device in the in the in the in the second two. It looks cool though. It's got that bionic arm, like I said. <laughs> He's got that dramatic the crow hair hanging in his eyes, yeah. in his dark, shadowy eyes. Yeah. Pretty much everybody else is cooler in that film. So he's 
ultimately a hero, but people think he's a villain. We should probably talk about villains or in some ways the lack thereof, or at least of, of active, you must fight this guy villains in, in this film. Yes, I do want to talk about villains. But first, I want to begin with an experiment slash game <gasps> as a nod to oh, our, nice. our, our old Dissolve podcast listeners who miss our games. This is very simple, but I think might be kind of hard. So excluding the villains in these two films we're talking about today, I want to go around the table and have you guys one by one name villains from Marvel movies, oh, movies no. only, no TV or Netflix series, <laughs> and see how many we can get through. Character oh, names only. So you can't say that guy that so-and-so played. There are at least two, two easy ones to get out of the way first. So Scott, I'll start with you. Uh, Ob- any, any, any Marvel Universe villain? <laughs> Obadiah. I said excluding, excluding <laughs> oh, the ones we've talked about today. I've already, I've already screwed One is in the title of a, of a movie. Uh, let's see. That would be, um... Tasha, let's start with you. <laughs> okay, so there's Loki, obviously. Yes. Okay. okay, okay. Now, Keith? Red Skull. Okay. I saved the easy one for Scott. I thought Loki <laughs> was the easy one. <laughs> Loki is one of the easy ones. Uh, let's see. Uh, what films are in the uh, Marvel uh, Cinematic <laughs> Any <villain>. Universe? Uh, <laughs> Any villain. Uh, what, kind of ca- what are the characters in this movie? <laughs> I said not in these two movies we're talking about. It's not, no, it's not Iron Man. <laughs> All right, Iron Scott's Man. disqualified. Is, is, there, is there some kind of age, perhaps, that, that uh, one of the villains might have? Oh, well? right, Ultron. Ultron. Yeah. All right, I'll give you that one. You don't deserve it. I don't. Tasha. Uh, I don't, I don't, I'm... I'm Debating whether to like try to edge out Keith by uh, grabbing the low hanging fruit. I'm just gonna go with uh, Malekith as the uh, the bad guy in the Dark World. All right. Whiplash. No. All right. Scott's disqualified. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't even remember the the title of the second Avengers movie. Or I, I couldn't even tell you that Ultron was the villain. Somebody had to tell me that. Go ahead. Um, okay, so we've got what the Iron Man movies are: Iron Man, uh, or sorry, Ironmonger, Whiplash, and. <laughs> Three. You named one earlier. Tony Stark. Oh. Wait. Okay. I'm just so, remembering MCU movies. I think I think so. it's trying to make a point. Yes. Yes. Point. I, th- I, I think I think I've made my point that we were able to. Scott, Scott made your point really well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's we we had to try really hard to get five out of by my rough estimation around 35 named villains. 35 in, named uh, villains. Yes, in the oh MCU. I, I did research. So it's a common refrain or among MCU aficionados that Marvel has a villain problem and I think uh, uh-huh. this experiment kind of bears it's not that my, out. It's not my problem. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about what that problem is and how it's reflected in these two movies. In the early going with Iron Man the villainy is very cut and dry with Obadiah Stane. He's operating out of a place of greed, as is the secondary villain, Reza, Raza, Raza. Who, who you named earlier, but did not name in that game just now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, he doesn't even count as a villain, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. He's like a stand-in. Yeah. Sorry. So as MCU has introduced more and more heroes to its stable, it's introduced ex- exponentially more villains. Pretty much every movie has at least two, and once you factor Hydra into the equation, it goes up even more. And by virtue of these characters being villains, they tend not to stick around for more than one movies, you know, and those that do tend to be the more memorable ones like Loki. So obviously there's a cannon fodder aspect to this so-called villain problem. We just don't have enough time with them. But I think there's something else at play, too. Phase two of the MCU has done a lot with the idea of the villain inside the hero, this idea of wrestling with the dark side of super abilities. Bucky Barnes is a very direct extension of this idea, as was Ultron, a villain born of Tony Stark's abilities. Mm -hmm. And both of those figures factor in very directly to what's happening in Civil War, which has more to do with the heroes than the so-called villain. Over time, these movies have shifted away from what the villains do and how heroes stop them to being about the ramifications of what heroes do. 
Consequently, the villains are now in place to explore that idea rather than having their own motivations. I think that that combined with the constant teasing of Thanos and the idea that there's this bigger threat looming that we have yet to grapple with makes it really hard to get a villain to stick, such as it were in the current MCU. Do you guys think that that holds any water or is there another reason you can think of why Marvel has such a hard time creating memorable villains on screen? I think it plainly has a problem. <laughs> yeah, you've demonstrated that very well. Yeah, I, I can't th- believe I, I didn't bring up Thanos. I, I, don't, I don't know if he counts. I we would have gotten there. I mean, we we could have we could have we could have gone a little bit longer. We could have gone a little bit longer. Keith was like waiting. He was like, "I'll, I'll just keep running him off." Because uh, you, but you, but you've also uh, been pretty immersed in in comic books and kind of know that. here and there. I just, it's one of those things where yeah, I've read a lot, but there's just so much of this Marvel universe I don't know about. You know. But I I specifically want to talk about kind of the recent trend toward it being more about the dark side of heroism versus Mm -hmm. clear-cut villainy. I got to say, for me, part of that is just that so many of these villains feel so alike. Their motives are either like some sort of big blank cosmic thing. Like Ronan the Accuser, I want to blow up the planet because reasons. You know, um, Malkith, I want to blow up the planet because reasons. Whoever gets their hands on one of the Infinity Gems, I want to use this to blow up the planet because reasons. I have gotten to the point where... The villain that gets its hand on a MacGuffin and had uh, Ultron. Somebody explain to me again how he got from protect the planet to blow up the planet. Oh, yes, because reasons. And they all end up feeling exactly the same to me. They're they're just sort of this abstract idea of evil, whereas the heroes are very specific and nuanced and varied ideas of heroism. And them struggling with their own flaws becomes a lot more relatable than some guy with a glowing hoobajoob who wants to blow up the planet. Well, and I think that's why Loki is so memorable, too, because he's oh, yeah. kind of a conflicted villain. Yeah. He's not just evil because I'm evil, you know, and, and he's kind of not straight evil. Maybe in the movies he kind of is, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like I like Red Skull, too, just because he is a, a flamboyant, over-the-top uh, mm-hmm. a villain and a, and a Nazi, Nazi to boot on top of that, which makes him... At least he has an ethos. Yeah, he has an ethos. (laughs) But also has to do with how you want to, again, how you want to spend your time. Because if you want to, you know, say develop a villain, that that means you're going to take time away from these interesting conflicted uh, souls who are uh, the heroes of your movies. And, and when you have a movie like these last couple Cup of Americas or the, the the Avengers movies, there's so many heroes that have to, that need servicing that uh, that other part of it almost becomes a necessary loss that you, that you have to take. You have to, you make the choice like I'm going to make the movie from the hero's perspective. And uh, if that, if that makes my villain and you know, this, this sort of abstract, ball of light then uh so be it that would also explain why the marvel tv shows had a, a, an easier time of it because you have more time to, to you know with Kilgrave and with the kingpin and... yeah I, I think Kilgrave is actually one of, from jessica jones the mm-hmm. netflix series is probably one of the best uh villains in, oh, the, sure. in the marvel stable but that's that's why i excluded them those you do i mean that show spends a lot of time with him personally and it spends some time on his conflicts like on his actual emotional conflicts which is part of it but you also just get to see so much of the damage that he's already done and that becomes what the show is about as opposed to he's going to blow up the planet later it's really about her psychological damage coming from him i don't know I, i wrote an entire piece for the verge about something I've been thinking about for a long time now, about how hero-on-hero fights 
are are just better than hero and mm-hmm. villain fights. They have more stakes. They have to be more creative. They're between people you theoretically care about. They can't just be like a slam dunk and then I throw you into the pit that all villains go into. You know, it, there's just there's so much going on with hero and hero fights. I'm starting to feel like I'm over villains. How do you feel about Hydra and the the idea of this the shadow organization? To, it's so to abstract, Shield. I think, and it's, it's yeah. more interesting in some. And again, ways. that that's a big plot point of Agents of Shield, which I don't think is that good, but you know, gets explored a lot more there. I hear it gets it. better. Everyone's. <laughs> This gets better. Yeah, yeah. It's it's difficult because it's Hydra's abstraction gives it 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 is it has all of the power of a good conspiracy in that it can do anything and it can be scary. It has all of the weakness of a bad conspiracy in that it's sometimes really hard to buy that Hydra gets away with the kind of things that it does. That's a lot of energy to put into being evil dudes. (laughs) It's some a lot of time and resources. (laughs) It varies a lot from Hydra agent to Hydra agent, like. How, how believable it all is in terms of, again, I'm going to say ethos. I'm going to go like old school D&D nerd here, but you've got your like lawful evil villain, a villain with an ethos and rules that he follows is so much more frightening and interesting than a guy who's just like, blah, 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 I want to blow up the moon. Well, I think that's part of why you, know, you won't see him in any MCU things anytime soon, but it's why it makes Dr. Doom such a good villain is that you can kind of see where he's coming from you know he's got a point of view he's got something he wants to protect there's there's a great fantastic four um storyline around the time that mark wade wrote around the time of the invasion of iraq where fantastic four decides they're just going to uh take over latveria and overthrow dr doom and they do and the people are latveria is like what'd you do he that's the that's the guy that's the guy that runs things. We keep things, you know, keeps us safe, you know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I noticed that no one has yet brought up Zemo from. <laughs> yeah, no, I was, I was going to bring him up because I, yeah. I is he I a thought, villain? He's a red herring. Well, sort of. He, uh, he manipulates everything. Yeah, he, no, he kind I mean, of. Yeah, and, and, and I, but he's he's acting out of revenge, which is like the most boring. Yeah, yeah but I, I like that is. character. I like Daniel Bruhl. I like Daniel Bruhl a yeah, lot. And I think and he did a good job with the character, but I think it maybe the reason Tasha read it as a red herring is that like it it's not really a plausible motivation for that scale yeah, of, a, of a, yeah. yeah, you have to believe he's a, he's a, a master a, a mastermind with a singular focus, and in that, which case, I didn't have any problem with that. What I had a problem with was he seemed to know where the buttons were to push before he went looking for them. He spends so much time investigating what happened in 1991, but in order to go digging for it, he had to already know what was there and what kind of effect it would have had. There's kind of a cart horse thing going on with his investigation that I don't entirely get. We should probably move on to, the, I guess, the big topic. Watching Iron Man next to this brings up, which is the MCU and where it is now and what it means for superhero movies and, and movies in general. And Scott's going to tell us it's all positive. Yeah, this is where the <laughs> pessimism that I promised yeah. the first half comes in. So the, my topic is Marvel versus the movies. Um, with the success of the MCU, we've seen a paradigm shift in movies away from film as a director-driven medium and toward film as a producer-driven medium, which it brings it much closer to television. Um, and given the integration with Marvel properties and comics and on and uh, TV and the massive success of the whole operation, I have no trouble seeing the financial wisdom in it. But uh, my problem with the MCU is twofold. One, and it's per- and personal, I, I'll, I'll admit. It. Well, at least the first one is personal. One is that I, I value cinema the most as a medium for personal expression. 
And that usually starts with the director. And when you have a number of different directors all conforming to the same template, they become craftspersons rather than artists, and the films lose a lot of texture. Uh, uh, Number two, sort of related to that, I think Marvel movies have a high floor and a low ceiling. Uh, I would say that, that... Captain America Civil War is a first-rate Marvel movie. I'd rank it near the top alongside the Avengers, the the other Captain America movies, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, but it's a good movie, nothing more. <laughs> and the worst of the Marvel movies, like would say Thor The Dark World, isn't that much worse than the best. And the, the, the homogeneity here is important for consistency, and I understand the, the logic of it. And, I, and uh, you know, if you're really into these things, then, then there's a lot of mythology to unpack but to me it does not it does not result in terribly dynamic or exciting cinema uh it's it, and it becomes i think over time a bit of an ordeal i mean i love the big fight scene uh, on on the tarmac but it, it's really unwieldy i mean in in these movies are not they're not getting slimmer i mean get, get going back to iron man was kind of a kind of a treat in the, in the sense that like there's a simple story uh, and now we have all this stuff that we have to pay off and just feel the weight of it you feel a lot. It's part of why I'm looking forward to Doctor Strange as the next one. I'll say that because let's just go back to telling one one guy's story. But but I will say this: I I am quite enamored of the Marvel project. I I'm, I enjoy these movies. I look forward to them. I like the mythology of them. Yeah, I think um, they're good. I think most of them are very good. And I think it's fascinating. It's the the skill with which they pulled this off is is amazing. As as just a piece of of architecture, you have to appreciate what they've done with all. You know, it's 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 quite good. My concern is is the success has proven too tempting to emulate at the expense mm-hmm. of a lot of other projects. You know, I, 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 I worry that uh, the universal monster universe. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, 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 yeah. I, I, I mean, I love going, I mean, I love going to the movies, but, but so much of it is, is driven by the stuff now, you know, it's so Marvel heavy. And, and then it's so, you know, DC tried to do it. And then as you say, the, the Marvel, the universal monsters universe, which I don't know that that's getting along at one point, the, I think the, the Dracula untold was not the strongest start. Mm-hmm. There, there's mm-hmm. a, there's a Hasbro universe, I believe in the works now. And, and, and with, uh, uh, Michael Shabon and Brian K. Vaughn working on it. So, you know, great, okay. great, great talent working on it, but, but, and obviously Fox is doing it too. Right. And, and yeah, Fox. And, and then, um, the silly, the, I think the silliest I heard was there was, there was a, Robin Hood extended universe mm, yeah. uh, series in the works, and it's like they don't all have to be this, you know. Marvel's great because Marvel has like these comics to emulate and all these characters and history to draw upon. But I don't need to see something as the first entry and in, in in the mini, you know, this mini uh, pronged uh, 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 entity. You well, know? If, are you ready to see me do something weird and unusual? I, I'm going to be an optimist here. Yeah. I, you don't get to see me do this much. Here's the thing. Pixar came along and started making fantastic movies. And all of these other companies said, ah, that's what America wants, CGI movies. Mm-hmm. And Disney made some really crappy CGI movies. And then, you know, DreamWorks started making some really crappy CGI movies. And all of these other companies started trying to copy what Pixar did, first visually, then narratively. And at first, it all felt very repetitious, very like none of this is, this is all ersatz Pixar. And then you started getting movies like How to Train Your Dragon. And suddenly, Pixar doing things at such a high level became a model that other other 
outlets could use. And they started finding the pattern and they started actually achieving still very occasionally. Um, but then on the other hand, Pixar occasionally has a, a failure. Um, the the ground was just set at a higher level, you know, to, to follow Scott's analogy, the, the floor may be very high. But that's a good thing. And then you keep trying to raise the roof from the new high floor instead of sinking the floor down. I feel like if this goes well, we're we're seeing the growing pains right now. You know, we're seeing the the Madagascar level of everybody trying to emulate what the MCU is doing. If things go well, we could end up in a place where other people are producing MCU level quality. We're we're far from there yet. We're still in its infancy. And I very much feel like you do, where I'm I'm already kind of tired of franchises and I want things outside the franchises. But there's still room for that. We're still getting movies like Green Room. But is there enough room for it? You know, that's, that's what I worry about. Like, I mean, I... I, I'm of two minds. I, I do really love these movies, but but I really feel like they they are taking a lot of the oxygen out of out of just movie making in general. I feel like you know if it, it, they're the defining subgenre of our Hollywood era, and 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 it's not even a love hate because I do really like them, but but I do you know there's just it's just so much. Yeah, here's my thing, and I'm and I do like these movies a lot too, but I kind of fall more toward I think Scott's feeling and. My big issue is that it makes it difficult to appreciate these movies as discrete units. It's it's all has to be part of a bigger thing. And it's like, if you don't, if something doesn't click for you, or if you don't understand, it's like, oh, because you don't remember that thing from Thor The Dark yes. World, or, you know, or that's setting up something that you won't see until 2018, and you won't be able to fully appreciate till then. It goes back to that whole anticipation culture thing, like, that is kind of exciting and easy to get caught up in but when i go back and try to think of a specific individual mcu movie it's hard to remember the specifics of that movie because mm-hmm. i just think of it as part of this bigger tapestry that is kind of frayed in some and in, in not that interesting in some places so that i think is kind of the biggest problem with this mcu to me um while making the caveat as we all have that these movies are a lot of fun and there's a lot of good stuff in there and there's a lot of great performances in there and there's some good you know style and action directing and these are all good things but just to take a step back to the bigger picture it's also really great to encounter a movie that you're like that is a movie i can watch again and again and appreciate for exactly what it is and you know, like a green room or, you know, the guest, which we bring up all the time or something like that. Like it just exists as itself, not as part of something bigger. Yeah, totally. I'm completely in agreement with that. I was going to make that. You're, you're in agreement gonna, with me I was agreeing gonna, with I was gonna do, I was gonna do a way. I was going to do a way less articulate version of that, of that monologue. But it you don't have become, a tapestry just, metaphor just in not your having, <laughs> Just going into the movie, you know, having to, you have the expectation almost like you've seen all these films yesterday. When you have it, there's I've seen you know usually I've mm-hmm. seen you know many dozens if not hundreds of films bef- between one Marvel film and the next. So I'm not really obsessing about that stuff, uh, you know, twenty four seven. And then and then just having these elements of the film of f- films that would not be there otherwise uh, because they because they call back to something or they or worse um, have you kind of anticipate things to come. Uh, I just I, that's not. That's not really fun movie behavior in my part, uh, well, for my, uh, in my view. I mean, I think it's all very interesting that we're at now, basically, 
Marvel Studios came along and tried to do for films what the comics have been doing for decades. Mm -hmm. And they're going down the exact same path and they're hitting the exact same problems, which is after you've entwined everything and you've built up all of this trauma on the characters and they're hugely complicated and they all have relationships with each other and they have all this history, you you come up with something that's difficult to access for newbies, for people who haven't watched all of the MCU movies. And that is a financial strategy, you know, to say Civil War is awesome. Look at these characters flying at each other. To appreciate this, you need to buy all of our other products. Mm-hmm. But at the and same time, if you can. I just, I wonder how long it's going to be before we get the the massive crossover reboot universe wipe kind of crap that they've been doing since the 80s in the, the two big companies have been doing in comics. I want the MCU to do a one-shot. I want, I want like a standalone, you know, <laughs> maybe that's what Dr. Strange will be. Cause I don't know. I, I, that's kind of no, what Guardians going to be. He's going to be big, Guardians, 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 but Guardians, way. you know, at, at this point, Guardians feels like kind of a standalone thing. I guess. Yeah. Well, no, cause there's a whole infinity stone and exactly. yeah, there's never the mind. Infinity thing coming up. Yeah. And, and I mean, infinity wars is going to make everything yeah. collide. Oh, before we leave this topic though, I have two questions. Where do you see the wheels falling off of this? Because I actually don't. It seems it, it seems quite cleverly constructed to just go on and on. And I guess at some point fatigue will set in. The other question is: Do you see anyone else doing this successfully? Not currently. Yeah, successfully is the. Yeah, is the, I mean, I mean, I mean, for all you the haven't seen Deadpool yet. I haven't seen Deadpool yet, but and that's a that's a big thing because to me, Deadpool is the sign that as far as individualistic for for the moment one off except that it made money so there's going to be more of them but if you look at it by itself in this moment that we're in deadpool is a individualistically directed story about a relatively obscure character who is highly distinctive and who in his movie does his own thing which has its own tone and it's not an mcu movie but it is a movie in the mcu mode made about a marvel character and it's fun. It's a fun movie. It's a movie that comes with all of this like Batman level angst built into the character and doesn't take it seriously and has fun with it. And it's a completely different flavor from what's going on with uh, the Fantastic Four, what's going on with Batman versus Superman, what's going on with all of these different things that are sort of trying to emulate the MCU model. It's its own thing and it's distinctive. So, I mean, Deadpool in and of itself gives me hope. It's going to stop giving me hope as too soon as Deadpool 2, 3, and 4 come <laughs> yeah. out. But right now in this moment, like, let me have it. I think every, I think there is this expectation, you've, and you've heard the prophets, uh, Lucas and Spielberg, suggesting this, yeah. that that the bubble is going to pop at some point. That that the, the bloat of these... Uh, Films, just blockbusters in general, not 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 just the, the MCU, but just the entire model of Hollywood filmmaking as it stands now is going to get to a point where it's not sustainable, and the problem ends up being what what happens when the bubble pops, what happens to the the, the movies, how do how do things get re- restructured when and if that happens, I, I I don't know, I don't know, I can't anticipate when the wheels are going to fall off or the bubble is going to pop. If I want to stay with my metaphor, and what and I can't certainly can't anticipate what would happen in the aftermath of that. Uh, real quick, just to go back to like other places where this is successful, uh, Star Wars. Like they, they've yeah. been. Star Wars is pretty good. Yeah, I mean, obviously there were a bunch of Star Wars movies before this most recent iteration, but this most recent iteration is setting up an expanded universe. You know, <laughs> Isn't it weird uh, how we forgot about Star Wars. <laughs> I know. I know this. Did you see me go like? 
like this while you were talking <laughs> when you mentioned Lucas? <laughs> it was while you were drinking well, wine, least... so I thought you were trying to say something about your wine. At least they're not associated with the same distribution company or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. I, like one of the things, and I, I actually have Star Wars in my notes because I meant to bring this up and I forgot. One of the things that The Force Awakens brought in was the idea of a younger generation of characters who are fanboys of the older mm-hmm. generation of characters and just think it's golly gosh so neat to be here fighting among them and that's something that civil war does as well and i like that in and of itself seems like it could potentially keep it refreshing for a while the new class the the new class shows up and is like you guys are so cool they were great like that was the best stuff for me in 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 captain america civil war spider spider-man and ant-man because they brought that a lightness and fun and and zippiness happy to be here and they're yeah they're very specifically stand-ins for fans who Mm -hmm. are like we're we're so excited to be included captain america mr lang (laughs) it's an honor i'm shaking your hand too long wow this is awesome captain america i know you too you're great jeez ah look i want to say i know you know a lot of super people so thanks for thanking of me it made me very excited, even anticipating uh, a Spider-Man <laughs> reboot. Oh, man, I just want to really? know what happens to his his uncle. uncle and- I, I want to know his origin because <laughs> I, I don't think the story hasn't no. been told enough. Well, I, I, I kind of wonder. <laughs> you ask where the wheels fell off. One yeah. of the places no, the wheels fell no, off for me was the second. The have, second yeah, reboot. I, I have a feeling that they will probably not skip that. Even, yeah, this was kind of a nice so. back to work. Well, yeah, in Civil War, like kind of specifically alluded to the, like him not like I don't want to go into it yeah. like, <laughs> like his origin story and mm-hmm. that could be read as like we're saving it for his reboot or it could be read as we're, we're not going to tell that story again which I really hope it's the latter yeah. now, at and the Black same Panther time too gets like when, but I think Black Panther's an origin story we kind of need yeah, yeah. No, that's not as much for less sure when Tony asks Spider-Man what his ethos is he, he fumbles through this sort of if you have the ability to do something <laughs> about stuff and you don't and then stuff happens and I was like that's adorable you're trying to figure out your catchphrase and you haven't you haven't written it yet that's I, I really liked that moment a lot before you wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about style. I think one of Scott's concerns is there's kind of a homogenous quality to these these films, and I don't think that's necessarily misplaced. I think there, I think you kind of run into the thing though is, is the more characters, more heroes you have in it, the more samey the style has to be. Like I think of the Iron Man films as being sort of the the um, house style for for Marvel movies and the Marvel I, you know, style book. Yeah, and I, and I like mm-hmm. them, and they, they look good, but they also look very conservative. I think the the second Captain America movie had sort of a, a kind of a overcast, gloomy, murky look to it that is kind of abandoned by this one because you can't really have this many characters in, in a movie without having a style that suits all of them. I kind of hope that that changes a little bit. I think Guardians was kind of its own thing. Like I said, I think Cat, the, the first two Cat movies were kind of their own thing. Thor I think, had elements of being. Yeah, I, I love the look of the Thor movies. The whole intergalactic. Whenever Marvel gets into the whole like mm-hmm. cosmic universe, it, it has a different tone that is interesting. I don't know if I love it, but yeah, no, I I I did. I really like the look of those movies a lot. I, I like the looks of those movies more than I like those movies, which I think are, are pretty good. So I hope that I, I it looks like Doctor Strange kind of has a distinct look to it, or 
Christopher Nolan-ish look to it at least. <laughs> um, I hope that they get a little more adventurous with that. I think you know they're going to have to get more adventurous than that because you don't necessarily. I think people are going to get a little tired of getting the same sort of Marvel product delivered to them. And and again, I like that product, but but uh, I like a little more variety with it. Yeah, I just the fact that they keep bringing in distinctive names. They've they've got movies coming up by Taika Waititi, who directed uh, What We Do in the Shadows, um, Peyton Reed. Ryan Coogler? I mean, if you bring in Ryan Coogler for a film, surely you have to let him inject some Ryan Coogler-ness into his film. But at the same time, like the the past movies have suggested that not. And Edgar Wright getting pushed off yeah, of Ant-Man really yeah, comes to mind. Really of- Which is why at this point when people point out who's directing an upcoming Marvel movie or really who's directing an upcoming any franchise movie. Like I refuse to get excited about Ryan Johnson's Star Wars until the film hits theaters because I'm excited by the concept, but I don't know if it's going to see daylight. So I feel kind of the same way here. I'm really hoping that some of these directors will get to bring a little more distinction to their films. Yeah, I think the Edgar Wright thing was sort of a, a bad sign because yeah. this, you know, this is it's a very distinctive vision, and he, you know, it's not clear what the story is, but clearly there was a, a artistic disagreement, and and he ended up losing out or or walking away from it for sure. Uh, you know what I I want to get guess at this. I think there actually is one film in the MCU that stands out as a. De- Distinctively stylized piece of work. Which one? I, I'm, I want yeah. you to guess. Um, which one am I? Which one is Captain it? America first. Of, that's first, a, that's yeah. the one. Yeah, that's one. But it's it's all borrowed uh, Spielbergisms, which is uh, Joe Johnston <laughs> style. But uh, it has it in spades, especially the first third. Well, we'll see what happens. We have certainly have no shortage of projects to look forward to to see uh, how this uh, universe develops and, and grows. Until then, Iron Man is widely available on DVD and Blu-ray, as well as on-demand services, and it's probably playing somewhere on cable right now, most likely on FX. Uh, <laughs> Captain America Civil War is currently in theaters. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, want to kick us off? Uh, sure. This is <laughs> not very ambitious, but I, I, the story behind it is interesting. What's happened to it is interesting, so I wanted to uh, talk about it a little bit. You know, If you're a cinephile and a music fan who spends any time on the internet, uh, you've likely been exposed already to P.T. Anderson's video for Daydreaming, uh, the second video from Radiohead's new album, A Moon-Shaped Pool. Uh, the first, for Burn the Witch, uh, incidentally, uh, was inspired by the Next Picture Show movie, <laughs> The Wicker Man. Yeah, um, we own The Wicker Man now. <laughs> uh, to me, I think, that, I think the video is an absolutely beautiful piece of work. It just follows tom york as he walks through one door in one room after another in, in a very ghostly fashion um very much in the spirit of the of the song uh, and the song title um you know as i wrote on, on on twitter it's almost like it's like he died and gone to tracking shot heaven um <laughs> but what excites me the most is that anderson has printed multiple 35 millimeter copies of the video and distributed them to independent theaters across the country that still exhibit 35 you know including uh music box here in chicago and new beverly out in la and and a lot of a lot of uh you know draft house cinemas have gotten you know these these nice little reels with the seven minute video and uh you know it's just another sign that anderson will not not let film die so easily Uh, and it's been fun to see the excitement that some fans have in seeking out 
screenings of this music video that they could just as easily see uh, on the internet. You know, I think this happened to us when we saw Alien and Aliens in the theater. Alien we saw in DCP, but to this, you know, we saw Aliens in 70 millimeter. I think there is, you know, a, a keen interest in the theatrical experience and a, and a really keen interest in seeing things on celluloid when possible. So I was excited about that. I think it's vinyl for cinephiles at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, except it's way more expensive. That's what that's what makes it impossible <laughs> and horrible. Uh, vinyl be it'd be great if it were vinyl for cinephiles because they would just stick around. But it's not. It's not the the analogy is bad. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I'm afraid to say. I wish the analogy held up. Um, you mean it's more expensive to produce than vinyl? Exactly. Okay. But vinyl you can produce vinyl records. It's not. You know, it's a sustainable market. It's not sustainable to make film prints. It's extremely sure, expensive. The back end is different, but the the cinematic experience is to the viewer as the vinyl experience is to the listener. What yeah. you're saying is it's a good analogy. Good analogy. Yes. <laughs> All right. I feel like I should be patting this analogy in the head and maybe I like it. giving it a treat. But uh, but it's 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 a nice phenomenon in my opinion. It's a and it's a it's a great video whether you're you want to go out to a theater to see it or not, you should see it. Genevieve, what how about you? I want to recommend another comic book this week. Um, it is most definitely not the Civil War book that inspired this new film, but rather a current ongoing series about one of my favorite underserved characters from uh, Civil War, The Vision. The series, which is just called Vision, is written by Tom King and is currently seven issues in, so there's plenty of time for you to hop on now. Uh, if you are all intrigued by this character, I would highly recommend this series, which mostly separates the Vision from his work with the Avengers and instead focuses on dark family drama. Uh, the conceit behind the book is that Vision, wanting to experience humanity, creates a synthetic family for himself, a wife and twin children. And together, they're figuring out how to exist as synthetics in the human world. I don't want to spoil anything, so I'll just say that things go in a pretty dark, unexpected direction that has very little to do with superheroes and has a lot to do with the dark side of humanity. Nearly every issue ends with this incredible gut punch moment, and it's a really rewarding series to follow month to month. But if you're not a month to month reader, there's a collected edition of the first six issues scheduled for July. So watch for that. Oh, neat. That's Vision both by fascinating and terrifying. Uh, Keith, why don't you tell us uh, your pick? Well, it's this movie that it'll be in some theaters by the time this comes out and, and more theaters as we go along. And that's and it's a film called Love and Friendship by uh, Whit Stillman, uh, the, the suddenly newly prolific Whit Stillman, who made uh, <laughs> made three great comedies of manners in the 90s, uh, Metropolitan, Barcelona, and Last Days of Disco, and then kind of went away for a while, came back with the the divisive damsels in distress, which which I which I like. I think it's a it's a it's a it's a fun movie, and this is this is sort of his kind of inevitable um, Jane Austen adaptation. Uh, Austen's kind of been an influence from the beginning, and, and you know referenced and and uh, alluded to, and, and this is an adaptation of everyone's favorite Jane Austen uh, work, Lady Susan. Uh, which is a, a semi-finished novella she wrote uh, as as a young as a young writer, and it, what's good about that is it kind of like you know there's not the expectation. It's not a book a lot of people have read or have or those who have read have that much attachment to. So you can kind of go in and merge his sensibility with with Austen there, and it works really well. But but also it's fun because it, it while it's very much with Stillman and Jane Austen, there there's um, it's not what you really expect from either. I mean the the lead, the lead character Lady Susan played by Kate Beckinsale is is kind of awful but but very charming charmingly awful and, and Beckinsale it's like I haven't seen her be this fun 
really in a long time since I mean this is this is the Kate Beckinsale of like Cold Comfort Farm. It's like who is this person and why isn't she in every movie? You know, uh, and uh, it just got it just other there's um, other fun characters in it uh, too. Chloe Sevigny's in it, uh, Stephen Fry's in it. Uh, there's a guy named Tom Bennett who plays the, the dumbest aristocratic character you'll like someone who's basically too dumb for this world and 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 his every scene is delightful. Um, specifically, one in which he's pretty sure there's twelve commandments. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a Whit Stillman moment. No, please, please, yeah, it's, seek it out. It's, it's really, it's really quite good. Tasha, how about you? I am going to go out on a, a weird and fairly shaky and unsafe limb and say, uh, people who like superheroes might actually want to check out the 2015 Fantastic Four, directed by Josh oh, Trank. Oh no! I, <laughs> wow. I I watched it last night. It came up on HBO. Tasha, no. <laughs> it's too late. I have already Keith, put it Keith into is my eyeballs. very close to storming out right now. <laughs> Johnny storming out? Are you going to catch on fire and then fly out? Well, here's the thing, though. I All right. So the, the previous uh, cinematic versions of the Fantastic Four have been, shall we say, nay so good. And... I went into this one. I like. I I had no interest in it in theaters. Much like the the Spider Man trilogy reboot. I thought, why do I ever need to see this again? And I sat down with it, and I found myself actually getting drawn in. I think Miles Teller is exactly the wrong choice for Reed Richards. Uh, this this patrician. Uh, Basically, the adult of the the Marvel superheroic world is now played by a guy that seems to be about fourteen years old at all times, but. I really liked the characters' dynamic with each other, and but more than that, I liked the word world building in this film. I I wound up thinking it was reasonably interesting, and it's probably the most interesting version of Doctor Doom I've seen on the big screen. And it all comes down to a crazy maniac has the ability to destroy the world and decides he's going to blow it up because reasons. And I actually related to those reasons. It was it was the first time in a long time I've seen one of these all powerful maniacs sets out to obliterate the world movies where I actually thought the motivation both made sense and was interesting. I liked this version of Dr. Doom. It's very off model. It's very off kind of the central idea of the character that you were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, where he comes from and what he means to the world. But I liked the daring of this film. You know, I I wanted more of Michael B. Jordan as, as Johnny Storm. I think the film underused him in the end. And there were a few other nitpicks here and there that I could I could quibble with. But basically, they generally didn't come down to faulting the film's ambition in trying something new with these characters than I have seen on screen before. And for that alone, I, I kind of give it kudos. I really wanted to like it, but uh, I, I just, I think it's, I, I think you're giving it way too much credit as a coherent film. I mean, <laughs> it, it, to me, it feels like just badly patched together for the last, it's the last minute. You know, there's that weird leap in time where all of a sudden they're just doing different things than they were doing before. And, and the, the ending feels like a completely different movie. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, 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 I kind of beneath all that, you can kind of see what they're going for, but I, I, yeah, I just, did, I can't, go, I can't go there with you, Tasha. Sorry. I appreciate, I appreciate your boldness in choosing this film. The stakes are low at this point, though. People are not having to drop twelve bucks or whatever to see this thing. They can, they can find it pretty cheaply and maybe give it a chance. And you probably won't have to sign on for a Fantastic Four too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, it's a discre- It's the discreet. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's your discreet superhero movie. I agree with you about that. The, like the very ending, the the post Doctor Doom stuff 
it does feel like a different movie and it feels like it's because it's setting up a Fantastic Four 2 mm-hmm. and I don't have any interest in that Fantastic Four 2 you don't have to worry about it <laughs> <laughs> don't but, worry about it And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out May 31st and June 2nd. Scott, tell us about our next pairing. Uh, certainly. Uh, Shane Black's action comedy, The Nice Guys, with Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling, offers the rare piece of original filmmaking in a summer packed with the usual sequels, remakes, and franchise hopefuls. Black's hyperverbal scripts for A Lethal Weapon, The Long Kiss Goodnight, and The Last Boy Scout made him the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood, but his love for L.A. noir falls more in line with his directorial debut, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, The Nice Guys falls more in that tradition. On the next episode of The Next Picture Show, we wanted to compare and contrast The Nice Guys with another West Coast noir, L.A. Confidential, which also features Russell Crowe and period garb. What sets L.A. noir apart from other noir? And what difference has 20 years made in Crowe's career? Find out in two weeks. All right. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Iron Man, Captain America Civil War, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show and on our Facebook page where we're posting feedback. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730, wouldn't we'd love to hear from you, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha? Uh, You can find me writing about film at The Verge, and you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. I'm on uh, Twitter at at Scott underscore Tobias and I'm writing currently for NPR Variety New York Times Washington Post Rolling Stone Vulture uh, Village Voice and I'm the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings uh, what about you Keith? I'm on Twitter at kphips 3000 and I am uh, writing for and, and editing the film and TV coverage at uprocks.com and occasionally contributing to uh, uh, Oscilloscope's Musings <laughs> with yeah, editor-in-chief right, Scott Tobias all of you we are um, such a little incestuous group here yeah 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 uh, you can stay updated on the next picture show via Twitter at Next Picture Pod via Facebook at facebook.com slash next picture show or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. And also, if you're enjoying the show, tell friends. I've had a couple of interactions on Twitter recently. It's like, I didn't know you guys had a podcast. Well, we do. So <laughs> if you can help us get the word out, that would be great. Uh, thanks again to Genevieve for producing our show with assistance from Colin the Animal Griffith. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing some recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. And finally, we'd like to thank our parent podcast, Film Spotting, for all their help, input, and support. Please tune in next time. Thank you.